Hello, friends, and welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I will be your host. Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Veeam Software. Veeam is everything you need for your data protection needs, so I highly recommend them. They're longtime friends of the show, and, and I've been a long supporter of them uh, in my own blog, and very happy that they've carried over their support here to the podcast. So if you want to find out more about Veeam software and getting your data protected, go to vee.am forward slash disco posse, and you'll get right to the page where you can find out more and it lets them know that you came from, from our show. So go to vee.am forward slash disco posse. This episode features Steve Watson, who's the founder of Trendbreakers. Steve is a CFO, a CHRO, He's licensed for insurance, but he's built Trendbreakers, which is a collective community and how he helps those folks to be able to lower the cost of their insurance. So if you're in the U.S. market, this is going to be particularly interesting. But we go way beyond that into the merger of of where a CFO and and the human side of of people management and and organizational management come to play, uh, how we deal with things, and also a real a ton about the entire healthcare market. With that, enjoy the show. Hello, this is Steve Watson. I am the CEO and founder of Trendbreakers, and you are listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. We are talking today uh, with somebody who has a story that uh, I'll encourage people to go go to. I'll actually include a link to to the site. Uh, so Steve Watson, you're the founder uh, and CEO of Trendbreakers. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about a lot of stuff. But again, we, we're going to say the you've got an incredibly large family and an incredibly hot day and you are, you are recording from your truck. Best podcast guest ever. I love this. (laughs) We are not letting this COVID-19 pandemic stop getting out and talking. So no doubt, no doubt. So Steve, you've been, you've got a really neat story uh, and we could go through so much. Your background is, is incredible uh, from everything from, you know, missionary work, to becoming a CFO, you've got an MBA, you've worked in and out, you've, you're very community oriented, uh, and, and here you are today with Trendbreakers and, and much more. Uh, but, but actually, let's start and work, we'll start and then we're gonna go in the Wayback Machine. Tell us about Trendbreakers and, and what, was, what was the problem you saw that needed to be solved and, and what are you doing with it? So I, I wear two hats. So I, I have a day job where I am the CFO and I'm the top HR professional at my company. The company's based in Arizona. It's a social work company with about 500 employees. And every year when I went through my, my insurance renewals, I, I didn't know that much about it. And there was one year that the, the broker came into my, my office and said, I'm sorry to say this, but you're going to have a 30% rate increase. And 30% just floored me because 30% was equal to hundreds of thousands of dollars that I as a CFO now had to come, I had to find somewhere in the company to pay for. It turned into hundreds of dollars for each employee each month that they had, they had to cover out of their portion. And it really just ticked me off. I mean, we have employee benefits to recruit and retain employees. We want to do the best for our employees. As a CFO, I know how to negotiate 
you know, rent costs, raw material costs, IT costs, all this stuff. But for health insurance, for some reason, it's like this, this area that we, we never touch. And I decided to, to go on this journey to learn as much as I could, ended up saving my company half a million dollars per year, and then decided that I wanted to share it. I, I felt that if I, I didn't share with other employers that I was complicit with this messed up system. So Trend Breakers became my community where I, I brought other employers together. We would share ideas, replicate those ideas across the country. So we have about 300 employers right now, CFOs, HR professionals, helping each other break the rising cost of healthcare. Well, it sounds like the, the people aspect trumped and the the cost aspect, even though cost is important in the way you describe it, but I could hear all the way through this that the you know, the the value of retention and the capability to give to your what's needed for your employees, it's it really feels like that that was what led you to, you know, chase the dollars down. Yeah, I, and and both. I mean, I I like I said, I wear both hats, but I, I kind of feel like if you're you're on an airplane and you just paid a thousand dollars for your flight, and the guy next to you just paid two hundred dollars. To me, there's something about, you know, being that guy at the $200, like sharing that knowledge with other people to like show how that you were able to buy it, how you were able to get the same service, the same value, but at a much lower cost. And my, my niche is health insurance. When this is the interesting thing of, it's a, it's a, it's a tough sort of area to navigate for folks, especially if you're, if you're a company owner, founder, especially right. small business and medium business this is the last thing that you want to be an expert in. And so quite often you're literally going to pay because of your lack of expertise in, uh, you know, have what has the impact that you felt, you know, as, as a CFO been in, in the results of what you did in in that first attack of it. Yeah. And, and, and and I agree. Like I, we're not going to be experts in this area. We are going to have brokers and advisors and come in and help us. But we do have to realize that we're the ones choosing those brokers. We're the ones evaluating those brokers. And who you choose and who you work with has so much impact over the results that you get. Just as a small example, most brokers will get paid a commission off of the premium that that you're using which translates into the fact that they get paid more when your premiums go up and you get higher costs. And so there's this counter incentive um, to them actually helping you lower the cost of your healthcare. Now that's a majority of them. There are a lot of advisors now moving towards a fee base to a contingency type stuff. And so a lot of the stuff that I did, and that's the thing that I did right off the beginning when I got that 30% rate increase, I remember looking at my, my broker there and saying, I am not giving you a 30% rate increase just because I had an employee use our plan that blew it, blew it up. Yeah, that's the, the, you finally use the thing that you've been paying for and then right. you're financially punished for doing so. Exactly. <laughs> right. But sadly, like the, the industry is, is they're not in the business of giving money away. And you know, I, I myself have a personal background. I, I worked for a large uh, you know, international insurance organization in the, in the tech side of it. And I saw you know, how the business rolled. And, and unfortunately, there, there is a for-profit model and, and it, it plays out for in that way. And so- yeah, as much as we say that the healthcare system in the US is really messed up, it's working really, really well for many people. You think of insurance carriers and they're having record revenue and record profit. A lot of brokers are growing exponentially and doing really like riding that, that wave as well. 
but it's not like that for everybody. There's a lot of employers and there, I would say there's many advisors that are kind of changing this model. And I don't expect the insurance carriers all of a sudden to just turn and say, okay, well, we've made enough money now. Now we're going to turn around and help you guys. I think it's going to have to come from the ground up. And that's what I really enjoy about this group of trend breakers is I, I feel like we're just on this journey, carrying this banner, fighting the good fight, and then just sharing our, our wins and helping others replicate it as we go along. But it, the community aspect of, of everything I find is such a differentiator. Uh, and because at the very least, you can find out that you've done as much as you can via anecdotal evidence. Right. And, and that's such a, a, an opportunity for folks to be able to communicate, whether it's, you know, you know, just a general HR professionals community or whether it's the CFOs or technology. These are all ways that we can learn together, commiserate together. <laughs> yeah, and if, I could, if I could go back early in my career, that's the one thing I would tell my early self of like, you need to get out of your, your office and start talking with other people that are doing the same thing that you're doing. And you're going to grow and learn much faster than you, anything you can do just by yourself. And I, I really didn't start that until I would say, you know, three years ago, three or four years ago. And I, I'm just amazed at how, giving people are and how willing they are to help and share the resources and experiences that they, they've gone through to help you. I, I share this with you in that, yeah, if I, I wish I could go back to Eric of, of age 19, I was in like early technology user groups and was lucky enough to have really seen the value of it. But you know, not, not early enough you know, and I and there's probably many other areas of of stuff that I did, and, and I, I encourage people to do that. Like, look amongst other meetups, or there's so many ways, you know, technologically to connect with people now, and then, you know, use that as the in-person uh, connection. Which, you know, at the time that we're we're sharing this story, Steve, you know, obviously the world is it's a little hard to get in person, but we also have the ability to do so without you know, going in and literally pressing flesh, as they say, you know, and, and, and shaking hands and, and seeing each other in person. How did, how has the move to a predominantly digital experience, you know, affected how you think that the trend breakers, you know, effect will be uh, carried forward? Um, I don't know. It's good, a good question. What, I, what I've noticed in my community is that most of us, or I'd say almost all of us, don't have time to deal with insurance right now. So our, our companies, our revenues are dropping. We're dealing with staffing, like really big changing things for our companies that insurance is just a very small, minor thing. And so I'd say the last few months, that's gone dormant. What's, what's increased a lot, especially in HR and, and, and even in finance, is how do you deal with all these new government programs that are, are coming out? Like, how do you implement them? Like questions and having a network of, you know, 300 employers that come together and ask questions and how are you doing this? And what do you think about this? And how does it apply to this industry has been invaluable to me. And I would say the other people in the network. So it may not be just insurance related, but just overall just connecting HR and finance folks together. I think you raised a great point that, while we may meet for one reason, you find you share other commonalities. Right. And the uh, same thing as I, I, I'm a cyclist and, and I meet lots of cyclists and then I started running and then I saw people that I cycled with out on a run group and I'm like, oh, and then you find out that they also play guitar. And you see, so you, you find these adjacencies in, in what you do and it actually 
it makes those engagements and those connections even even more fun and yep. more meaningful because you you can really find a personal connection amongst other peers and who knows it may be a, a career creator down the road with with people that you're you're meeting in these in these communities. I will say, like again, for my day job where I am the the CFO there, we've always talked about going more remote and we've talked about being able to use technology in a better way, but it's always just kind of been on the back burner. And this just forced everything to to just, you know, within a week, we took all of our employees that provide counseling and therapy to individuals and families in the community to online and just set up the technology, got the process through. And what's been nice is that everybody's okay with hiccups right now. You know, the fact that I'm sitting in a truck right now and there may be sound going on and stuff, it's like, we're just okay. We don't have to be that, that facade or that professionalism that we had to have before when we were working remote. You know, now we can just kind of do what we need to do to make it work. And I, I love the mantra of not letting perfection get in the way of progress. Like we just have to make it happen. It's not gonna be perfect and that's okay. The, it's a good outlook. And, and also what I'd love to hear is your, because you've, you've got two very specific areas of knowledge, finance and people. Mm -hmm. And quite often people think those are divergent practices. And yeah, I, I remember I, when the HR director quit, they, they came to me and said, okay, we'd like to make you the HR director because, you know, it's kind of the same thing. I'm like, I don't know in what world you think it's <laughs> finance and HR are the same things. But. It's so funny because it's like, they're so fundamentally different in like the operational side of it. But truthfully, the, I, I believe a great CFO is extremely people aware. Like you, you, just in the way you, you talk, you know the impact of the things that you do and the decisions you make. But I, it, it is neat that I've seen some organizations where the, the people side rolls up through finance and other sides where it rolls up through operations and, right. and finance and different things. So how have you, have you seen other folks in your community and, and just in general that have been able to kind of see both sides of that coin uh, as they approach, you know, their problems and, and their operations. Yeah, I, I would say that in most cases, it still is pretty separate areas. Um, but after doing it for many, many years now, I, I really find that those areas actually are more similar than they're not. We're both admin departments. We're, we're both kind of on the back end. We're both trying to help the company bring value and help with strategy and stuff. We just attack it from very different areas. So, uh, an HR professional people person will will attack it through relationships through and a finance person will attack it through spreadsheets and numbers and data. But again, they're both trying to help the business grow, help bring value to their, their customers. Um, it's been really helpful for me inside of, you know, a, a company that our, our biggest cost is people, you know, 80% of our, our expenses are, are staffing and people, people related things. And so that it ties in really well for me. Um, but I think you have to have the right personality too. Um, you know, a lot of CFOs are just a, you know, the stereotypically accountant that don't have very good people skills and they'll struggle with the, the people side of things and, and vice versa. I think there's a lot of HR professionals that struggle with the analytical side of things and how to translate things through data. And even in, in the, the tech side of the world, which is where I've spent the dominant amount of, of my time and interactions was I, at one point, one of my careers, I, uh, in my career, I worked with a fellow and he was a CIO, and he, but he was a certified management accountant, but he had also led development teams. So he was this neat mix of 
his lens of the success of technology was also in the you know, his fiduciary responsibility and financial responsibility, you know, the success of the business via technology, both in, you know, shareholder outcome and cost. And, and it was, it was neat to see those, those two things. So versus a, a purely like, you know, I only care about my development team being great. Uh, they may not necessarily think of cost first or, or in alignment with cost. It's uh, I, I think in general, just the cross, team you know view is important i think any anybody it's it's a bit of a unicorn to find folks that can you know cross the streams effectively so it's it's neat to see how you've done it i, I will say that if anybody has aspirations to be the ceo or, or starting their own company doing that you have to wear those hats so you're going to have to figure it out to to handle the people and the finance and the it and all these different different hats uh, that is, uh, I call it the, the doing uncomfortable stuff uh, exactly. part of being a <laughs> being yep. a founder is that you guess what you you are the person for now uh, until you can afford to bring I, somebody I, else in. I mean, the fact that you have this CFO HR person on a podcast was just very different for me to go out and do this type of stuff. Well, yeah, to be to be media facing, right? This exactly. is a, <laughs> it, it is a uh, you are truly aware of many hats and and successfully. Right. Uh, so, congratulations on on all the things that you've achieved and, and well, carried you. through. Uh, I'd love to go back to to the start. Uh, okay. What did you know? What did missionary? Tell me about the the work of your missionary work in in Brazil, and and how did that influence maybe where you are today? Oh, greatly. So I, I grew up in the LDS faith. So that's a big part of what, what we do is 19 year old young men as we, we get asked to, to go serve these missions. So these proselyting missions around the world, and we don't get to choose where we go. We put in an application and they, they send it back to you saying you've been asked to serve in whatever country. I mean, I had friends from, I mean, everywhere, went everywhere in the world. And I was asked to go to Brazil. So I spent two years in Brazil. I, I learned the language, loved the people there. Uh, I took, I was grew up as a farm boy in rural Utah. So to take this farm boy from rural Utah and ship them the, across the world was just so eye-opening for me. And went back after I finished my mission, went back to, to school, back to college, and was always loved finance, loved business. But after being international, I decided that I wanted to to use my emphasis to be in international finance. And what led a couple of years later was I ended up working for a, a company that had had bought a, a, a company in Brazil. And they ended up sending me there two years later to to head up their, their finance. I was the director of finance for their Brazilian operations for five years because I spoke the language. Actually, you know, I mean, looking back at that, I'm like, I, I was 26. I don't know what they were thinking. Like they were crazy <laughs> to send a 26 year old down there for what they wanted me to do. But I spoke the language. I was willing to move my family down there and I was willing, you know, willing to be there. And so they were willing to kind of work with this young kid running their finance stuff. But that skyrocketed my career more than anything ever else would, you know, to, to jump from two years out of college to this director of finance role. And uh, it definitely, you know, again, through just even the way you speak, the sense of community and, and is strong. And I think a, a lot of us have, you know, we try to do and when we hope to do you know, if you look at everyday folks that maybe, you know, aren't going to be able to go to the depth of, of going in, into on mission and, and such, right. what are, 
what are things that you think that people can do in their everyday that could evoke that the kind of benefits in the self you know gains as well as community gains that that you can feel as part of being a, a, on a mission yeah i would i would say and it, it's actually an interesting thing because i think there's a myth that people in business are these greedy people that are always going to be backstabbing and stuff and i while there are people like that i've ran into them throughout my career i would say that they're more rare i would say most people are more willing to give and i would say that the people that are they're giving the most are the ones that are going to get the most out of it so like i said you know coming up with trend trend breakers is all free you can come on this community any employer any cfo hr professional you can just come on join it share experiences and and stuff but and the more that you're giving and so i feel like i'm giving away all this information for free and people are like why why aren't you charging people for this and they're you're helping all these companies do it i i feel like when i help they come back to me and help me with what what i need as well so you know if i was going to give advice to somebody that's younger is not going on a mission or something like that just help you know whatever you can find value in helping whether it's even just getting somebody lunch one day is it helping them on a project is it raising your hand and volunteering for something at, at work you're going to find that those volunteering things are going to set you apart more than anybody else. And not to do it from a greedy standpoint that you're only doing it to help yourself later, but I promise you that it will help you later. And the truth is it's there's science that backs the, what it gives to you and to the community. It's such a right. beautiful bi-directional thing that if they've gone through many different studies where people, if, you know, given even literally here's, here's $40, you know, go spend it on whatever you want to so go into the store and, and it's whatever you want. And, you know, and then they would ask the same people, here's $40 and go spend it on something for somebody who, you right. know, your, your spouse or your, your partner or your friend or whatever. And inevitably they've gone through and, and measured that folks that did something and bought something for somebody else when asked about, what was their feeling of, of, you know, goodness, you know, like, did you feel good? Did you feel better? You know, uh, as a result of what you did, the people that did something for somebody else, their lived experience, their remembering self, as they call it, was more positive because they had done something for somebody else, even though, and some people that did, they're like, no way, I'm going to go spend 40 bucks on, on something right. for me. They don't feel better and in fact, sometimes they feel worse because then they think, oh, I could have done this for somebody that needed it yeah. more or whatever. And it's, and it's small things that we can do that way. And I would say the other thing that I, I got out of, and I kind of talked about it as well, but getting out of your bubble, like we all live in a bubble or where, whatever that bubble is, the area that we live in, the company we work with, the community that we're a part of. And I just found, again, taking me from very rural, growing up on a sheep farm, Utah, in a town with a thousand people and throwing me into brazil and what i thought about brazil before i went and what i thought about other countries and everything was very different than when i when i lived there and just finding out the people are people it doesn't matter what country you're in what language you speak what your political backgrounds or stuff people they want to have love in their life they want to have children give back to their community make sure their their families taken care of have jobs and stuff and I, I learned that while i was living in brazil and and helping people down there and it just has always changed my perspective since then of how people talk about the world and then you're like well that's not quite what i got when i was living in brazil and i'll give you a, a, an example about that so when I, I was in brazil 
between 2004 and 2009. And I remember being in a taxi cab down there and the, the taxi driver was, you know, found out I was American and, and he looked at me and, and in all seriousness looked at me and says, how do you live in a country like that? And I'm like, wow. what, what are you talking about? And he says, there's, it's like, there's planes crashing into buildings there. There's kids going into schools, like shooting people up. Like, how do you live in that country? And I was like, just really threw me off because all of us think the opposite. Like, how do you live in Brazil? It's so violent down there. How do you live in these other places? But all we see is the very small, you know, news you know, bit that, that comes out about that, that country. I met a guy from Lebanon while I was living in Brazil. I'm like, how do you live in Lebanon right now? And he's like, I'm like, aren't there like bombs blowing up and everything going on there? And he's like, absolutely not. Like I, I go everywhere. I feel safe. It's a beautiful country. I love it there. And not to say that there aren't places that aren't safe in all these different countries. Like we all know in the area in our, our city and town, that's not very safe, but there's other 90% of the area that's perfectly fine. That's, and that's really it, right? It's the, it's the sphere of personal experience that, gives you the confidence in your you know anecdotal representation of what right. you live and it's so funny when somebody asks you and it's you, like you said the i've had so many experiences like that i travel with work and quite often you'll you know you ask hey how long have you been here how long have you been driving for uber or whatever like right. and it's it's so funny to hear these people and they're like oh where are you from like oh that must so exotic so exciting or like oh it says it dangerous where you are <laughs> and you know were you near when when something happened and like no no it's it's fairly mundane <laughs> it's not because yeah. yeah, the other is. people are like do you know britney spears might no, you do realize there's 300 million people in the United States. Like, I don't know Britney Spears. Sorry. Actually, even if I literally was in the same town, is it a good right. shot in there? <laughs> but the, the, the bigness of everything else and the smallness of our immediate community exactly. can really blow up our perceptions. Yes. And what's interesting is when you go and, and I think North Americans in particular, uh, I think we, we seek out the bigness. We seek out so much information sometimes that I actually believe it, it's having a negative effect because we are, what rolls up to the top of your newsfeed is yeah. not the stories of, of everyday good. It's the stories of, of immediate bad and, yeah. and high risk and, you know, 20 keeps our eyeballs on that, that site. Yeah. So it, it's what I, what I love is when I hear folks like yourself who've traveled and experienced things elsewhere, you know, you get that different perspective when you come back and you realize like, even, you know, my, my wife is, is American and I'm Canadian and we always get into the, sort of the healthcare funniness. Right. And I'm like, right. she's like, Oh, well, I hear people are like, you know, dying, waiting for surgeries. Whatever. I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 definitely not happening. But, but also every myth that I've been told about the U S healthcare system, it's you know it's literally just a sea of myths more than anything else not that it's not challenging and you know <laughs> but it is the, those big stories are always they sound bigger in print i guess yep. yeah and that just makes you think about all the covid19 stuff and whatever side of that that argument you're on about the economy or health or slowing stuff down but there's a lot of sides to that that whole story and it's just hard to deal with well i think this is probably the first real test of you know, we we very much changed the way that we, as a society, try to attack the problem, and and this is like it's new 
new turf for everybody. Yep. No one yep. was, no one could have known with this. As I talk about even the greatest machine learning and predictive models and all this stuff. It's just, it's like an Etch-a-Sketch, just wipe it out, start again. Cause no one, there's no more baselines to, to how we can handle things. It's very interesting to see how, how it affects. And like, like your example of, you know, someone's like, Oh God, how can you live there? I've, I've got friends that are living in areas that, by every news feed, they should be on the verge of death and 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 just looking to 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 climb into a hole. But they're like, no, it's it's quite quite fine. You know, everybody's doing very well, and you know, it'll be interesting to see as we as we work through this. And and I think what the downstream effect is. That's you know, what what do you think about you know, even in, especially in your industry, like what's what is the the next effect? Because especially as a CFO the world is changing in, in, well, in I think, how. I think just insurance rates is just an interesting topic. So should insurance rates be going up or down next year because of this stuff? And people will say, well, because of the uncertainty and everything and insurance carriers are just going to raise up rates and everybody, I mean, I've, you know, you get the scary ones of people saying it's going to go up 30 to 40% for everybody. But then when you dive in the details and everything, what's happening is, is actually claims are way down right now because we've shut all the hospitals down, all the elective surgeries down and everything down just to kind of handle COVID-19. And so that, you know, $50,000 knee replacement and $100,000 back surgery or all these other things that people may, may or may not need are not happening. And so there's a, there's a, there's a scenario where like things actually, you know, are lower because the other thing about COVID-19 is like, it's not, even if you get the worst stuff, like it's not a million dollar treatment. Like you may end up in the ICU, but we're just basically, you know, helping people, you know, we put them on a ventilator, but there's nothing else you can do, right? There's not some million dollar drug you have to take. There's nothing there. So That's the right. claims from a, from a purely financial aspect are not that expensive. It's not an expensive treatment to do. Um, yeah, but there's a big a, uncertainty right now. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And, and I've, I've started to look more into that, you know, because of, I'm hearing those reports of like, if you look at, yeah, current hospitalizations that are not related and, and what's durations, <clears throat> what's the type of treatments. And it's so different versus what, and in fact, you're seeing hospitals that are in, that are laying off because they've got all these yeah, staff. My, my, that are my not brother-in-law is an ophthalmologist and he would see him and his partner would see up to 250 patients per week. He says that he's down to like 10 to 20 per month now because wow. everybody just stopped coming in because nobody wants to be in the hospital. And then he was, he was connected with a hospital that they were trying to free up stuff. And he's just working on the, the, the emergencies right now where he has to go in and do a surgery, but that's it. And so people are like, well, there'll be this pent up demand that's going to explode later. Maybe, maybe not, you know, because honestly there's some things, I mean, I, I had a lot of back problems here, six, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago that I was on the verge of like, I got to do surgery. I got to do something. But then as you don't do that and you work out physical therapy and you do other things, like there's a, your body almost starts to heal itself on its own. Right. And it's not that doctor pushing you because they want to get the money and they have the surgery and do the stuff. And so it, it, it's interesting because I'm just talking about the gray areas, not the one where they have to do the surgery. You know, it's like, Very much, like well, it could yeah. wait, maybe, maybe not. This is what we recommend. Uh, you know, yeah, it would, and that's Steve. You really, you really hit a good point. Of I think we are going to see the, the case studies are going to be amazing for this time frame, right? Yeah, we're going to see a lot of information come out of this, and and like you said, some stuff that's there's you know 
elective and selective you know right. there's like specific stuff where you you are being picked for surgery because you need it and then there's elective where sometimes it's a bit more like well it's a this this could have a better outcome than doing nothing or or other alternatives and so hopefully i believe we'll you know normalize some of that stuff and and hopefully people find good therapies i think the other thing is you know, COVID itself is not necessarily the thing that does people in, but there's quite often that they talk about comorbidities and, and other right. stuff. My hope is that we all can hopefully capture other lifestyle choices that would be in benefit, not just for this situation, but for, for in general, um, like you said, therapies for, for, for physical health and back and stuff like that. I mean, said like, look, I've had, I've hurt my knee before. I've had friends that have had back. There's nothing to explain what chronic knee and, and back pain are like. It is terrifying, right? It's brutal. But there's also other stuff that may, you know, lead to it and that hopefully we can maybe attack some of those, you know, other leading indicators as they say, right? Yeah, and as a healthcare system, that's what's unfortunately about the healthcare system, especially in the United States, is we don't pay for wellness. We don't pay the system to, to help us prevent these things. Like they only get paid if they cut us and, and do something, right? Yeah, so, was it they say a, an ounce of preventative preventativeness is worth a pound of cure. However, you're, when you're charging by the pound or charging by the ounce, they make exactly. more than by the pound. <laughs> yeah, and and insurance companies they make money when you feel scared, right? That's when we all get insurance is when we're scared about high rising costs and stuff. And so I I, I worry a lot about just insurance carriers riding the wave and riding the wave of uncertainty. And so maybe they're just justifying saying, look, I don't know what the prices are going to be, but we're gonna we're gonna raise it up just to be be safe. And I think that a lot of employers and employees are going to paying way too much this next year. Yeah, so it'll, it'll be, the, and this is the importance of, you know, again, folks that are, that are starting to try to look for what's coming the most. This is why trend breakers and what you're yep. doing there is going to be critical. You know, you'll, you'll never be worse off by meeting with other people who are about to head into an uncertain situation. With exactly. You. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, it, you mentioned so uh, cost-wise to be a part of trend breakers. There, there isn't one, right? <laughs> no, there's, so there's two social media groups. There's a Facebook group you can find if you just look for trend breakers or on LinkedIn, you can find us there. Um, it's just a, a community we share. I bring in experts. We, I record those talks, kind of like what you do and record these podcasts. And I'm like, I wish I could have gone back and recorded all the the people I met with while I was going on my own journey. And so now I'm trying to go back and recreate that for, for other people. Um, trend breakers, I am working on building out a bunch of different partnerships and people that want to replicate these, these things. And so that's how I monetize, frankly, how I monetize trend breakers is if they end up using my partners, I get a referral fee from those partners there. So it's no cost to the employers. It just comes out of you know, referring these partners in. Yeah. And I think that's the, this is the very interesting challenge that anybody in a community organization faces of we have to keep the lights on. Oh and, yeah. And, I have seven and, kids and that's, it's expensive to feed them. And so like, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt the, and, but I truly think you, we have to look at the greater good, greater outcomes. And, and how do you, how do you fund that? I, I deal with a lot of open source, you know, technology communities and, and, Look, I'd love for it to be powered by hugs, but uh, it's not. <laughs> and, and the reality is we have to have just enough capitalism, uh, you know, to yeah. be able to keep the system healthy. And then from there, you can allow people to do 
things for, you know, for no cost and, and such. I, I find like, especially in this world that I, I'm in right now is everybody's okay with other people making money. They want them to be sustainable. They want them to be there long-term. They want them to be able to help. They just want to know how they're making money. And is it, are they making it, you know, for example, I always talk about insurance brokers. Are they bringing planned options to you because it's good for them or is it because it's good for you? And knowing that difference is, is very important. Yeah, that's the, uh, the, the neat thing too is the structure of your organization. I, I recently had a fellow, Peter Sisson, and uh, his company, uh, a platform called Yaza, which is like an online media and, and video platform. Really, really neat one. Uh, so I've got a podcast. We go through a ton of stuff about how, like, how he built the business and, and you know, he's got such a great history in, in, in startups. And he had this very specific organizational type. It's a Delaware public. I should I should know the name off by off by heart, but it's it's a where it's literally like for public good. Uh, so you're you're basically signing up that you have both a value to your shareholders and to the world in some way. And and it's it's tough because we you you just like you said. I want people to be able to make money to right. grow. And I just want to know that they're doing it in a healthy, healthy way, right? Right. What's what lessons do you have? So, as a CFO, you know what it takes to keep a business going and a community going. You know what are what are lessons for folks that are getting started with their business, and you know who can't haven't gone to the MBA route. You know what are what are maybe some of the lessons that you've captured along the way that it could save them some hard yards uh, out in the field. Um, the number one thing I, and I, I've done a lot of CFO consulting on the side for small businesses that are big enough that they need a CFO, but not big enough to hire somebody full time. And the, the two things I always talk to them about is one is cash is king. And I don't care what your report says that you have profit or you do all this stuff. It's like, you have to have money in your bank to be able to pay your bills. And we could go through all the technical parts about that and how you could be making profit, but be losing cash flow and, and vice versa, but focus on your cash flow of your company. And the second thing is, is like, you need to know the levers, like the big levers that are going to drive your company. So for example, in social work, we call it efficiency. So the, the number of hours that an employee is face to face with somebody that they're able to bill for versus the number of hours that they're doing like paperwork and other things they can't bill for that percentage you know, if it goes up 1% could make or break a company versus focusing on everything else in the company on, you know, rent or supplies or some of the things that I find that owners focus on the wrong things that don't are just immaterial when you look at them. And every, every industry is different, you know, you know, whether it's capacity driven on making sure you're, you're staying at capacity or efficiencies or, or whatever it is, you have to find those things and focus on those things. It, it's a good lesson and and especially for for folks that look and I talked to again with you know founders and and people that are that are watching the industry even as as employees of of you know venture backed fund uh, companies and such and there's such a sort of gross misunderstanding of of what actually drives successful outcomes as a business you know you may see tons of revenue but if it's then you know outweighed by other expenses and and there's no cash in the bank you could have 
we saw it with Amazon in those early days that they like, could have millions in mm-hmm. revenue and millions plus one in expenses. <laughs> no yeah, cash. Amazon's the one that everybody kind of uses because it's like, well, they became Amazon after you know a decade long of having losses and stuff. But I mean, for every Amazon, there's probably you know a million people that went the opposite way and had to close their business down. Um, I'd say like the third thing, especially if you're like really startup stuff is to focus on solving a problem for a person and not solving like a a venture capitalist problem of like being able to put their money somewhere. And so I I find sometimes people are so focused on like building capital and like putting that in there that they lose focus on the actual client that they're solving the problem for. That's those are the words that should matter to everybody listening and, and people that are saying like, it's, I, the I mean, the reality best. is if you solve a problem, you're going to be fine, right? Whether you get money or That's not. I mean, you're right. gonna, and, and, the, and the other thing is, is I, I, somebody told me this, this once is that you want to make sure you're getting green certificates of appreciation. And I was like, what in the world does that mean? And like, <laughs> it, they should be smiling to you when they're handing you dollar bills and they're giving you green certificates of appreciation, valuing your service. And if you're not getting that, if you're just getting it because of, you know, loans and other things, you need to go back and kind of reevaluate your business. That is such a, such a beautiful way to phrase it. I love that. I'm going to totally steal that phrase. No, go for it. I I don't even know who I got it from, but I stole it from somebody else. (laughs) It's funny. And I just quickly looked up on the side. Uh, So it's a Delaware public benefit corporation uh, is what it is. And Mm -hmm. so uh, effectively meaning that they're, they are held to a higher standard. Now, you know, no, I, will, the- I will say with that, that I, I find that a lot of CFOs get very skeptical about whether or not you're doing it just for the greater good. And so if I come out and I say, look, it's all free and everything, everybody's like, yeah, right. There's some, there's some catch. Like, and, and I almost find that if you're more upfront with it, the more that they'll end up trusting you versus trying to hide it. And then they have to find out on it by their own. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and that's it. Embrace that this is a service and it's going to cost money and it's being you know, moved back into the business so that we can grow in this way. Yeah, and, and if you focus on value, I mean, if I'm able to help a company save $500,000 and I'm going to make, I don't know, $10,000 off of that, I'm giving you $490,000 of value. Like I'm, I should be perfectly fine charging whatever I want to charge as long as it brings more value to them than, than I'm getting. And CFOs will be fine with that. You know, that's what they're always trying to evaluate and they're looking at a proposal. Am I, is it going to be worth the cost? Am I going to be able to justify it? Am I going to be able to measure it and know that there's value in this and does it make sense for the cost that you're charging me for? Yeah, it's even as, as simple as a, a, a friend of mine who just recently sold his house and he says it's going to, you know, staging the house was going to be like $5,000. And he's like, why am I going to pay $5,000 to stage a house? Well, he did. And, and the result was a $75,000 increase in the price of the house. Yeah. ROI. <laughs> Worked out pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you know, certain things are harder to measure. You know, uh, they're a little bit more intangible sometimes, but ultimately it is I think I like that your approach of just clarity, transparency, and honesty, no one can doubt it, right? They may say, you know, well, you know, I, I, I wish it was done more just for, for out of greater, out of pure good. And it wasn't money exchanging, but I, I know you got to run a business as a result. So, uh, this is interesting thing. I wouldn't mind if you, if you want to explore you were a scoutmaster. Uh, yep. I'm a long time, you know, long ago uh, member of scouts, both in Cub Scouts and Scouts. Awesome. The this is one area where I'm like, I, I 
world has changed so much and Isn't i think that's sad right <laughs> like they are this part's gonna make me sad they are obviously financially you know very a very difficult situation like yep. we, i'm not gonna we don't need to go deep into all the background folks will know but really truthfully this is <clears throat> a shift in the way that people you know work in these you know community organizations and just their you know they're they're going through legal situations which have ultimately affected the 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 ability to continue right which is terrible right but how much did that you know kind of play into other things that you did in life i really i really wish people could be able to go back and and find that experience because i found it to be very good and i met a ton of people and it, it really did shape a lot of how i approach things strangely enough and you know later in years I, I think just giving you experiences in other areas, it's one of the things I, I love about merit badges. Everybody jokes about merit badges and stuff, but the fact that you have to dive into 20, at least 21 different areas as a teenager and become competent, at least a small piece of, piece of that. You know, I find so many people that they, be, they, they ended up studying engineering because they loved what they learned as an engineer or that, you know, they worked on the veterinary merit badge and they, they didn't even realize that this whole world and they fell in love with that, that program or the, or the opposite or like you in the six areas and you're like, I, I don't like first aid. I can't see blood. I don't like this, this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so I love that about scouting. I love the fact of, again, especially nowadays of getting kids off of video games and out camping and kids, their eyes just open up and they explore this whole other world that, that they wouldn't without scouts. I mean, nowadays it's down to school and sports, right? They're kind of like the two areas that most parents are involved in. And there's not, there's many other clubs out there and everything, but just not to the level that I always saw Boy Scouts there. And my personal opinion about Boy Scouts is they ended up kind of losing their identity over the way. And Mike Rowe, the guy that did the dirty job stuff, he has a, an article about it that he talks about his love of scouting and what he learned from it and about boys being boys and, you know, learning be rough and doing things and, and how the world still needs that and how I think Boy Scouts started trying to be for everybody. And that's just, it just can't be for everybody. Yeah, it really was. Uh, and it's such a unique experience that I had. And like you said, I, I still today, I throw myself at little things because I'm like, how can I get this badge? Like we right. are, it's it was the earliest gamification ever. <laughs> yeah, my, my mom has been in the scouts for a long time. She'd run camps and do other things. Like it's amazing what, and I think Napoleon said the same thing, something like it's amazing what men will do for a ribbon. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's it's same with it's, it's built into I, I think it's a, a gender thing it's built into I see it more out of men than, than women that if you give us a bead or a, a ribbon a badge or something like that there's something about leveling up there's something about getting it and I think that's one of the things why like video games are so popular is that you're able to to level up in that game and get higher and higher in within that game but it becomes something that's just virtual as soon as you turn the game off you're done right but whereas other parts of our life of school and boy scouts and other things once you level up you get to keep all of those things all that knowledge inside of you yeah the the interesting thing is i used to always hear people say that like well imagine how much how smart these this generation of kids will be because they grew up you know with video games and their hand-eye coordination be amazing and all this stuff and i obviously we're all the stuff we used to justify to play video games when we were kids right yeah exactly <laughs> and and i said you know the the people that wrote these video games that they're playing didn't didn't have them when they were a kid right like we figured it out you know we're adaptive beings um now i do hope that we can capture good out of some of these things but oh, yeah. uh, i i believe the risk is so much higher 
versus you know how we used to approach learning and 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 you know creating communities uh you know whatever whatever that it was from you know in so for me cases. i mean you've kind of seen this theme of like to me it's the diversity that that matters a lot there's many good things that come out of playing video games of the community and learning different things but if that's all that you do you're going to limit everything you do in your life it's like you got to do different things like not only be in your house and do video games but go camping you got to you know, be a CFO, but it helps if you learn HR and IT as well, or other other areas, you know, it doesn't ha help just to stay in rural Utah, you got to get out and see the world. Yeah, definitely diversity of experiences creates a diversity in approach. Yes. And that gives you a lot of adaptability. And so that when you are, you know, CFO and HR, and suddenly you now have to be the head of sales, you, yeah. you, you have enough, you, you're like, okay, well, I did the yeah. other two gigs. I can, right. I can I've been a buyer of these things for 10 years. Now I just got to learn how to like sell it to the same people. So. Yeah. Well, and this is interesting. So the, you are certified, you know, both as a CFO, as a CHRO, um, you're, uh, you're a certified public accountant. You are, you've really kind of tackled too many letters right <laughs> yeah lots of c's uh, um it, now did you find that you know that led you 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 specifically didn't go into selling any of the things that you you've gotten into but nope. you know was that just your own preference or or you know i'm always curious how people go down the road and don't necessarily go right into a certified financial planner role my preference of like doing trend breakers or getting those certifications like yeah just in like you know the fact that you you effectively have all the stuff you need you could start your own finance planning and, and hr right. planning organization you know and sell it but you know what made you choose one path versus the other yeah i mean from a very young age i always loved business i loved numbers accounting and most not so much like the debits and credits of it but knowing why that why a business does well and why it doesn't like to me the numbers tell a story you know they have a plot they have they tell you know good guys and bad guys and all that stuff within the accounting numbers that i can see so that's what I love about accounting and I loved finance and I wanted to become a CFO. And there's just this thing that if you're a CFO, not CPAs are mostly for tax accountants and auditors and stuff, but there's this expectation that if you're a CFO that you've got your CPA and I ended up getting to the CFO role first and, you know, through my, you know, went to Brazil, became the director of finance, got this job in Arizona, became a CFO, but everybody just assumed I was a CPA and I had that goal to get my CPA. Um, so I ended up doing that, but then I fell into this HR world. I had no expectations, no idea that I'd ever be within HR that gave it to me. But if you're, if you're going to give me something, then I'm going to dive into it. So I started attending all the national conferences. I started getting all this learning from it. And the certification mostly came from almost wanting to show externally that I had this internal knowledge of, of HR. And so I just went and you know, passed the test and did it just to, you know, I just figured that if I was going to start these consulting companies or if I was going to go down this route, just having two certified bodies showing me that I had this knowledge would be helpful. And it ended up being very helpful. Yeah, we we all need our, I need a sash with all of my certification badges on it. <laughs> yeah, but it's not, it's not for you, right? I mean, the CPA yeah. didn't add much to me or my MBA. I mean, I, I loved them. I learned stuff, but it's these it's this recognition for outside people to recognize that you, you have it. And there's just this trust factor of having a, being a certified public accountant that is when I go in and I talk to other employers as a CPA, they just trust me a lot more. 
know, there's credibility that comes comes with that. Yeah, the the uh, another one that I remembered going through and having worked in finance and insurance industries. Uh, at least in Canadian, I don't know if this uh, U.S. side. So I'll speak to the regulatory side in Canada. You had to have certain certifications, and people would become like it was. You know, I work in a startup. Everybody's a VP of something, right? Like right. it, it yeah. happens very easily. But there, you literally had to. Hit, we call it the PDO. It's like the partners and directors. You had to actually take a certification in order to show that you are legally able to represent the fiduciary duty of the shareholders and the organization, and the board, and and it was a, a very a strict test of you had to have your PDO in order to become a VP or a director. So you had a lot of people who were, we called it comma director or director comma. So if I was <laughs> comma director, it was different. So you were, you were the something or other director. So you could be a, right. you know, IT director or whatever. That just means you were the man, you were, you were the manager of a bunch of managers. Yeah. But if you were director of something or director comma, then that meant you were, a, a recognized, you know, part of uh, of the actual. You you had a different share structure effectively than than others. Yeah, that that's a really cool thing that they do up there. They don't do it here. If you can if you can type the word director into your title, you got it. <laughs> I say this is a. I'm a director of technical marketing, and my a good friend of mine. He says he goes. You know, if you're a director and you have no reports, then I got bad news for you. I'm like, dude, I'm <laughs> I'm good with that. I know it's it's literally just so they can. Well, put I, a title I'm not a big it. one about like like titles. Like I'm what CEO and founder Trember. It's me. Like I, I have yeah. contractors. I have people out working for me, kind of doing marketing and stuff, but it's me. So what do I call myself? I'm everything. I'm the company. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Chief cook and bottle washer. Right. right. It's, uh, <laughs> but I'd be curious in, in many years, like how much of this stuff carries forward. Like, obviously, like you said, the CPA is, is incredibly important, especially as a CFO. You know, you, you don't, you don't become a CFO by just rising into the position because no one's there. It right. can happen, but it's it's a very different responsibility, you know. And yep. I'm always curious does 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 that weight ever hit you of like yes, a lot. yeah. That's it's got to be very different. Like people don't realize that when you sign your name on financial reporting, you're you are personally. I was talking Online to a business, line, right? Yeah, I was talking to a business owner or a former business owner, and he was like, "Look, I, I'll never go back in that world. I, I never wanted the pressure. I don't want the pressure of having to make payroll and doing all this stuff." And I was like, "You do realize that's what I've been doing for like last twenty years of my life. I mean, as a, <laughs> as a that's what I, I mean. I have five hundred families that I'm having to worry about. You know, making sure that the money's there, that it's stable, that you know, the money's coming in and out, that I'm meeting all my compliance and legal stuff. So." it does weigh a lot on me, the responsibility of it. And it's foreign to me that many, most people in the world don't have to worry about those kind of things. Like that's just all that I do. And it's always on my mind, like my personal finances, but at, you know, as a whole company finances as well. And it's, I think that is a, a shows the proof of the way that you approach things and, and why it's, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to be, watching the world as we go through because you know i'm i'm always torn in like the strength of regulation versus the you know the over-regulated areas right. and and sometimes it's it's a tricky balance you know and especially when you know states country you know universe companies that are worldwide represented it's uh, it, it opens the doors to very challenging things i even yeah. remember like sarbanes oxley was like the a big when that first came in and i remember the change and they're like look everybody's 
executives are going to sign their name on this on the Sox report, and we are setting them up for what they do. Uh, so if we are wrong, they are responsible. And it was a big responsibility to see to have yeah, our a fascinating like Sarbanes Oxley because it came down because auditors didn't do their. Job. I mean, there was definitely a company <laughs> Enron did their job, but the auditors. You know, that's where it really went down. But then the auditors benefited so much from this Sarbanes-Oxley because now they had all this like testing they had to do that it actually became a boom for that industry. And it was just kind of the irony of that. It's just always been fascinating to me. Yeah, when it's funny, you think of like the the groups that, you know, yeah, yeah like Enron was the great example of like, well, no problem. Let's, here's my Anderson uh, report right. on why we're all good. <laughs> like neither of which are, are, are there anymore because of that. And yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I, I have an incredible respect for auditors because I know even the responsibility they take. I remember working with folks and that was it, like doing IT audits and business audits. You're like, look, you're doing a random sampling. Exactly. <laughs> and signing and, into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it is no light uh, duty that they have in, in putting their name on that report. So uh, I'm always respectful of that. And, and, it, and I think I, I hope again, as as people that listen to this and they look at when they're starting a company, you have to think about beyond just you know, once it's more than just you. you. You have to really change the way you think about things, and you know, any well, and, and trust the, you know, I've spent a lifetime building up my knowledge and my expertise within these these areas but also being able to trust people that put in a, put their lifetime into whatever their expertise is, whether it is marketing or sales or IT or product development, whatever it is, that's the other thing about small businesses that I feel like they, they feel like they can't trust anybody or they, they don't want to give away that, that control. And it's like trust their lifetime of expertise. Right. Yeah. The, they are particularly good at this one thing that you are reasonably yep. good at. You know, yeah, it's it's even I, I was looking at like I was hiring a virtual assistant just for because I do a, a lot of different things. And I'm like, look, this is getting a little right. tough to handle. But the first thing you think is the easiest thing to do is like hand over kind of financials, like, which is the hardest thing to do because <laughs> handing over invoicing and, right. and mentioning that stuff, it's the, you know, so it took a long time before I understood how to like set up the processes to hand over to somebody. But like you said, I said, look, this is what they do really well. Yep. And and I, you know, I hire a tax accountant and a and a tax attorney because I want no need to learn those skills. I, exactly. I trust them, you know, intimately, and 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 they've been great as a result of of doing that. So it's uh, the other thing I'd love to you know hear from you, Steve, is you know you you talk about best practices, you know in what we look at insurance and healthcare and, and bringing that to your business. Do you, what are those, you know, and especially coming out of this COVID situation, you know, what are the things that people need to prepare for in the coming months? Um, I would say know your data, know your claims and, and trust that and not follow like the winds of everybody, you know, the world's going to end and claims are going to be super high and just taking whatever the insurance carrier gives you. Like look at your claims, be justified with them. The, the thing that kind of a practical thing that I think that I could kind of give you and all the different listeners, especially if you're in the United States, is that there's this myth built in that the insurance companies have the best rates. And that's why we're always like, 
thinking we've got to have insurance and do things. And the reality is in a lot of cases, that's just not true. And a story that I gave is last summer, I had really bad allergies. And so my doctor says, you need to go get these allergy drops. And so I go off to the pharmacy to get these allergy drops. And the first thing the pharmacist says is, oh man, these, these are pretty expensive. I'm like, that's not a good sign. He says, they're, I'm like, what are they? Says, well, it's $235 for these, these drops. I'm like, well, my eyes are red, but maybe not that red. You know, I'm getting ready to walk away. But I'm like, oh yeah, but I, I, I got insurance. So, so here's my, my insurance card. They, you know, of course they've negotiated a better rate. He's like, well, the insurance rate is $231. I'm like, really? Four bucks? That's all you could get off of me was four bucks? And, but then there's this app, and I don't know if you've heard of, you've heard of GoodRx? Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, yes, I, I've seen it a few times in, in advertising and, uh, and uh, yeah, it looked, looked very interesting. Yeah, so, so GoodRx is, a, is, a, is an app that you can download on your phone, completely free. There's no personal information you have to put in there. But what they do is they go gather all the cash prices, coupon prices, everything of all the different pharmacies around. So I pull up that app. So I'm standing in the same pharmacy with the same exact drug that I, I got prescribed and it was 75 bucks. I'm wow. like, wow, it's $150 cheaper for the exact same thing from the exact same store. But then it, it shows you like if in your area. So if I drove three miles away to the local grocery store, it was 20 bucks. And so of course, you know, hop in my car, I go three miles over to the local grocery store, 20 bucks. It's, it was 10 times more to use the insurance company's rates than it was just to use the cash price there. And what I talk to employers about is like, that is one transaction for one employee throughout the whole year. Now, if you take that and add it all up, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars that you as an employer paying for more than what, what you could be. And so setting up in a different way and trying to, to take advantage of, of these things is how I, I see a lot of companies saving money and not just thinking that, oh, insurance companies got my back. They're going to have the best rates. Yeah. And it becomes the, it's like managing any contract that has multiple things inside it. Like we, we see the use of HSAs and so healthcare right. spending accounts are great, but then they're not depending on how it outweighs you know, your, your own costs. And as a, so I've, I would, I'm Canadian. My wife is, is, is an American. I go back and forth. And so I have not yet made the full transition to the, the U S healthcare system and, and it will come, but it was, it was interesting. So we, I'm trying to like maximize my use of the things that are wrapped into my plan. Right. And, and I think that's a lot, they're baked in there because yeah. They know, you know, you're they're not going to use enough of them. That's uh, basically a, a, a giveaway, <laughs> and then they'll make the money on the things that you do know you need. You can need eyeglasses. I got bad news, kid. Right. None of them are free, you know. <laughs> and and there's there it's always like every three years. I'm like, but my eye doctor says I need to be back every year. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would just say just like taking advantage, like learning your plan, kind of what you're doing, and like maximizing the areas where where you can maximize and the and there's so much stuff we could go on to take take too long to get into but it's there's so many different opportunities and GoodRx is just an example of like a very small one but that it when you when you extrapolate it over 500 employees over all their transactions it adds up to a lot of money and we could talk about that same thing happening with just you know surgeries and there's some hospitals that charge you know, 800% of what Medicare charges another one charges 200% of what Medicare charges and can you set it up in a different way and kind of exclude those ones that are, that are char overcharging and maximize those ones that are kind of charging a fair rate. I, I, I think that's the biggest thing that I wait for within this industry is just openness and transparency within the U S like 
I'll show up at the hospital. I'll sign my life away saying basically I'll pay any bill that they send to me. And I have no idea what it's going to be until yeah. two or three months later, which is just ridiculous, you know, just, and if, if they could just publish the prices, if we could just have them out there, I don't even think you have to regulate it, but just if you have everybody charging a hundred dollars and Joe Smo over there is charging $500, he doesn't want to have his name up on some website showing that he charges five times more than everybody else, unless he can justify it. And if he can't, then great, you know, charge five times a month. That's, that's perfectly fine. But they don't want to share it. They don't want to show all this stuff because it's just going to drive the prices down and become more of a market-based system. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that the market, economy and the market, the free market system is founded on the transparency of pricing and the How, how do you know of, value if you don't know the price? I mean, <laughs> exactly. there's no yeah. way to calculate value without the price. Yeah. That was the, uh, the one thing I guess to joke about is that like as a Canadian, I, I can go and I could just saw my leg off for sheer enjoyment and go have them sew it back on. However, we don't see the the actual explicit cost of that. So it comes out in other ways. Clearly, right. it's it's not free. Uh, it's just that I'm not paying for it directly. And doing those things will affect other downstream things in the healthcare system. And, uh, yeah, and the fact that there is a lack of transparency is, is the, the most dangerous part of, of it, which makes it, and it makes it tough to navigate. Yeah, so. and I'm, I'm seeing people believe that. I mean, I, I just, there's doctor offices now that, I mean, I, I say that it's new, that we're becoming more transparent, open, and but it's going back to the old school way of like, you would just pay directly to your doctor. And, that, and that's the purest form of like free market is like, you have a service, they have money, you exchange for whatever price you think this is fair and you just move on. Um, but inside of healthcare, it's, that doesn't happen because I, as an employee, talk to my employer, talks to a broker, talks to a carrier and the carrier talks to the doctor and then all those other parties are involved and they're all taking their share of it. Um, yeah. There's a, a little taste coming off the top at every, every transaction. And so and... I see some doctors going back to where it's just a direct fee. And so right now I, I have a doctor that I pay a set retainer fee every, every month to. The beauty of it is I can now text, call, email, come in whenever I want, however I, I want, talk about different things, work on wellness, preventative stuff, because he's not incentivized just by by the visit. Now he's more incentivized of making sure that there's quality that I'm going to stay paying the monthly monthly fee to him and being you know customer service oriented. And there's no set contract, so I can leave whenever I want if he's not providing enough value for that. And there's no incentive for him to like, refer up within his own system. So a lot of hospital systems are buying up primary care docs right now because they're the gateway into their hospital system. So if the primary care doc says you need this type of surgery, are they forced to just recommend people within their own network or can they just recommend anywhere, anybody? And yeah, so sorry, I'm going to go down that rabbit hole as well, but that's- No, it's, it is, and, and I think that's- So it, they, they become like the milk at the grocery store. Like they'll, they'll lose, you know, the loss leader like primary care physicians, but that's who we trust the most. That's who we select. That's who we want to hear the recommendations, but just knowing their incentives in place. Like, I mean, the other example I always use is like, I don't care how much a pharmaceutical rep makes and commissions and sales and stuff, but I do care if my doctor is getting a kickback for recommending that pharmacy or you know, prescribing that, that drug to me. You know, I want them on my side, independent, unbiased and, and stuff. And as they get bought up by different hospital systems, they create a bias. 
And yeah, the and you can see it. It plays out in in advertising. In in yeah. FTC regulations are much more transparent now. They're still a little bit veiled, but it's like you know when, you know when Kim Kardashian holds up a skin cream on her Instagram, you know that she got paid right. money for it, and she has to write a hashtag ad or advertisement. Like it has to be explicit now. And it would be great to see that move into the healthcare industry. Like, yep, I'm I could offer you one of two two medications and one of them I'm, I'm incentivized to do so. Yeah. And which is fine. And then you can make your best choice, you know, knowing, knowing that there's a biased incentive there. But, That's it. Yeah. I'm not trying to stop them from, from having a business. Yeah. They, they've chosen an industry. They've chosen a business. They're trying to genuinely do well by their patients, their customers. I'm the customer. Right. <laughs> I want him or her to be concentrating on, like you said, the successful outcome and the and and making me healthy and and well exactly. and because I will go back every month. Certificates of appreciation, right? Yes, those are magical things. So beyond green certificates of of appreciation, uh, uh, I very much appreciate the, this. Has been really really good, Steve. And so tell us where do we find more about you, uh, folks that want to get involved with Trend Breakers? What's the best way for them to to reach out? Yeah, I'm always on, on LinkedIn. You can find me at Steve Watson CPA. And then you can also research, you know, search for the group Trendbreakers uh, on LinkedIn, as well as the website trendbreakers.com or go on Facebook and look, search for Trendbreakers as well. And again, I'll, 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 of course, I'll have links to, to it in, in, the, uh, in the show notes. But definitely, folks, you know, go in, check out the video. I said I, I spent time watching your story. And, okay. and it's, it's really meaningful because it tells you why why you do things and, and you're, you, you are a good human, sir. I, oh, and I, I thank you it. for, for spending the time with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on.